Good morning, everybody. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 is our Bible reading. If you'd like a church Bible, put your hand up, one will be brought to you. It's page 1233 in church Bibles. Page 1233 in the church Bibles. Revelation chapter 1. All right, we're going to read from verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a double, a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and hold the keys of death and Hades. This is God's word, and we're thankful for it. We've already been reflecting that this is a special week, a great week, the great week in the church calendar. And although we don't adhere tightly to a church calendar in the church here, we like to focus on the key elements of the life of Jesus and what it means for us. So it's great to think of this week as the great week, this special week. Today we've been thinking about Palm Sunday, Jesus going into Jerusalem. Next Sunday, of course, we're thinking of the resurrection and celebrating that together. But between the two, of course, comes Friday. Good Friday, we call it, when we should be thinking of Jesus' death. And we'll all be meeting here with Hillview, and it'll be a great time, I'm sure, on Good Friday at half past ten. Please join us then. And by the way, on Wednesday, your home groups, um, the notes which you've got in your bulletin, I hope you've got one, but the 
notes you've got in your bulletin suggest that you might want to think about this week and come prepared just to make some contribution during that program. Please don't prepare long sermons because your group leader won't thank you for it. But just a verse to read maybe or a song that you can read a verse of or even a a song on a CD or something like that that will help us focus on what this week's all about and worship together. So you might like to bring some of those to your group to share together. Whether there's time for everything, well, it just remains to be seen. But it's a great, great week. But we are living in a day when events seem to be hemming us in. At least that's how it feels to most people. It feels like that to me. Every day, almost, there is one crisis after another on the media that we read about and in our papers and, and here on our radios and televisions. Of course, it may be that it's just that these things are reported more easily and we can hear and we can see them in our living rooms today in a way that past generations did not. But it certainly seems like that. There's everything is crushing in upon us with all these things happening in the world today. Natural disasters, floods and earthquakes and, and so on. And uh, global warming, etc., etc. Or what about wars? Syria. I mean, we hardly know how to keep up to date in our thinking about all these things. There are so many of them happening around the world. You know, when one of these great crises come, we focus on it, we pray about the Christians in it, we pray about the disaster and for God to step in. But when there's one after another after another and they seem to be piling in all, how do you pray for all of these things that are happening? Egypt and Libya and Somalia and Sudan and Congo and, well, you could go on and on all morning. And then I've been doing some work in Poland and they're frightened because right next door is the Ukraine. It's only a few miles where many of them are, what's going to happen there? And when that takes place, what will happen with Hungary afterwards? We won't take time now to think about it. Or what about the financial world? 2008, of course, we think of the great financial collapse and the big crisis and so on, but we turn on our televisions and again we hear about, you know, pensions, do you know, some bankers, some sportsmen, earn more in one week than the average person in 20 years. I say earn. It's probably a misnomer. They get it. It's not just the entrepreneurs who develop a big company and sell it at great profit, but it's their salary at that level. And then there's the moral world. We've just uh, been thinking in these last few months, what do we do about the issues of single-sex marriage? It's all very well for us to say, well, we're not going to get involved in that because we don't feel it's God's word and God's will for us, but how do you handle these things, etc.? After all, God loves us whoever we are. How do you handle these issues? I was reading just this week that the big crisis, they reckon, is not just that some parts now will accept marriage between people of the same sex, but when those people travel to another country where it's not accepted, where is their, what is their status? And you could go on and on. 
I was reading just this week that within 50 years, well, it was written by Hank Greeley, who is the Stanford University professor of law and particularly genetics. And he was saying that within 50 years, nearly all babies born in the Western world will have, been, have their genomic makeup selected beforehand because of the pressure of competition amongst children and amongst families. And that will result in a very high percentage being outsourced to surrogacy to bear their children, what he described as technological adultery. Within 50 years, more than 50% is his viewpoint. And then there's the exploitation of children, not just sexually, but as a means of gratification, but industrially, where children will be taken and put to work in factories even more than they are at the moment, etc. Now, of course, it would be relatively easy to spend all morning talking about crises like this, wouldn't it? I mean, we've got enough of them. We could easily spend all morning doing it. And what we would be doing would just be raising fear level in us till we get more and more worried about this world. I mean, 50 or so years ago, maybe slightly longer than that, 50 or so years ago, the sociologists used to, used to complain that religion was putting fear into people's hearts. You don't get that these days. Today, it's the scientists putting fear into people's hearts. Now, all this raises a big question. And the big question is, who is in charge in all this? Is anything, is anyone in charge? Or are we just subject to blind forces that don't have any feelings and we're just subject to them? Now, our generation is not the first to ask questions like that. John, that we've just read from in his book of Revelation, his revelation, John who wrote Revelation may well have asked it in his day. After all, he was the last of the apostles of Jesus and here he is, an 80-year-old man or thereabouts, and all the other disciples had been martyred because of their faith in the Lord Jesus by this time. When Domitian, the Roman emperor, came to the throne of Rome, John was exiled to Patmos. Patmos being that little Greek island, one of the northernmost Greek islands, just a rocky outcrop. Even today it's got less than 3,000 inhabitants. Just a little um, outbreak of rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea. He thought he was doomed to spend the rest of his time there in Patmos. Lonely, ministry finished, no preaching, nothing very much to do, exiled there. Christians were being persecuted to death across the Roman Empire in those days. Jesus is Lord or Caesar is Lord was demanded by Domitian and those who worked. And you have to choose. And Christians were found out and put to death. So John, no doubt, had the same sort of questions that we have. Who's in charge in all this? In all these pressures and all these problems and difficulty. Now, repeatedly throughout history, time and time again, generation after generation, waves of pressure have come and built up around us. We've never had it so good materially, but things seem to be getting worse in almost every other way. 
And Christians today ask sometimes the same question. And of course, non-Christians. I mean, some of you may, may remember the name of Jimi Hendrix, the guitarist. When he stood on the edge of the stage, was it at Woodstock? And he called out, is anybody in charge in this world? Out of the 200,000 people there, not a single person said yes. People are still asking the same questions. And here is John on this island of Patmos. And as he's thinking, no doubt, because he's under this pressure, no doubt thinking who is in charge and how, how is he in charge, he has this wonderful Wonderful vision of Jesus. Two things to notice by way of setting the scene before we turn to our key verses, which are verses 17 and 18. But first of all, notice it says, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Verse 10. In the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what does that mean? Well, what, uh, the Lord's day, of course, that's fairly clear. We know what the Lord's day is. It's the day Jesus rose from the dead. We shall be thinking about it again next Sunday. Sunday it is, the Lord's Day. Christians met then. Acts 20 verse 7 says, On the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Or 1 Corinthians um, 16 verse 2, it says, On the first day of the week when you come together, bring a gift that you have laid on one side to bring it. So they met even in New Testament times on the first day of the week. And so do we. Great to be able to have the opportunity to do so, though that's denied some people in some parts of the world. So that's what the Lord's Day is. But what does it mean he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day? What does it mean to be in the Spirit? Well, obviously it means to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's not referring to John's Spirit, because that wouldn't make sense, but he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He's submitting to the Holy Spirit. He's attending to the Spirit. He's inspired by the Spirit. He's motivated by the Spirit. He's in a high state of influence of the Spirit in his life. That's what it means. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, just a couple of things to note in that. We just outlined that John was not in a very favorable situation. Here he was, exiled. He wasn't in a great worship service with hundreds of people praising the Lord with their hands in the air and singing songs of praise as sometimes we do. He wasn't in that situation at all. He was there exiled, probably alone, or at least only one or two maybe along with him. He wasn't with a crowd of people seeking the Lord or in a worship service. He was in exile. And yet he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. You know, some people say, well, I'd be a better Christian if only dot, dot, dot. If only I could do this, or if only my circumstances were different, if only my financial situation was different, if only my husband was different, if only my wife was different, and so on and so on. But here's John in a very unfavorable situation, but he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And then it says not only that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, but it also reminds us when he's being in the Spirit that the vision he received in the following verses were because he was in the right attitude. In the right attitude. It depended upon what he was thinking about, what was at the center of his thought life and so on, as he was on the Lord's Day. 
and he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. It simply tells us this, that coming together on the Lord's Day, on Sunday by Sunday, depends a lot on our attitude if we're going to see the Lord. You know, it's all easy for us to come together and say, well, I don't like him leading the service, I don't like her taking part, I don't like him preaching, and so on. And we come with the wrong attitude. Maybe a rebellious spirit, or grumpiness, or stoicism, or argumentative nature, or whatever it is. But if we're coming together in the right attitude, we're in the Spirit on the Lord's day as we gather together, that's where the revelation of Jesus is. John was devoted to the Lord's day, honoring the Lord. And it may be today that you personally are on your own little rocky island. Theoretically speaking. You're fearful, you're alone, your circumstances are hemming you in. Fear grips your heart when you look at your family, your finances, your future, your fitness, your faith. Just to mention a few Fs. Maybe that you're feeling those things. Well, that does not prevent you being in the spirit on the Lord's day. John wasn't in a favorable situation. And it will not prevent you, need not prevent you, having your own revelation from the Lord. Now, I said those two things. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I said there were two things. The first one, he was in in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And then it says in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And then in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He turned to see, and when I saw him, He saw something. The answer to John's fear was what filled his vision. What filled his sight. And he turned to see and it was Jesus who filled his sight. He puts it here, when I saw him. In fact, John, in all of John's writings, he seems to be captivated by what he saw. For example, he's writing in 1 John. And as he introduces his letter in 1 John a little bit later, those first few verses, the thing that grips him was that he saw Jesus. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you. That which we looked at, the life appeared, and we have seen it. That which which was with the Father appeared to us. We proclaim what we have seen. That's just in the first few verses of 1 John. John is captivated by what he saw. In John 1, John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. There's this sense in which seeing was important to John. Of course, it's not the only one. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Ezekiel has this transforming vision of God himself. The psalmist, Psalm 18, King David speaks about how he's on the run from Saul, but he had this vision of God and he was transformed by it. Or Daniel, chapter 10, it says he was with a group of men, but he was the one, Daniel was just the only one who saw the glory of the Lord, the vision from the Lord in verse 7 of Daniel 10. Now why is this important? It's because... Because this is not an academic exercise we're talking about when we're talking about seeing the Lord. We don't come to just learn some new words from the Bible. We don't just come to try and captivate ourselves with a few thoughts we hadn't thought of before. 
We need our sight taken up with the glory of the Lord Jesus and to be captivated by him, being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. We turn our eyes to see him and we worship him. That's what happened with John. It's so important that we come like that. It's not just the physical thing of learning something else from the Bible we hadn't thought of before. Today's Palm Sunday, when hundreds shouted, Hosanna! But did they really see him? Well, they changed their minds a few, weeks a few days later. We seem to read from Scripture. But we captivate, need to be captivated so that we see Jesus, what God has done for us in Jesus, who Jesus is. We consider together how wonderful he is and the glory then becomes a reality for us. It, it's actually quite difficult to put it into words. The, we used to speak about people being converted as seeing the light. You never hear that phrase these days. Oh, he's seen the light. It's a pity really because it's a great picture in the New Testament. Have you seen the light? Or being converted, being changed completely, being born again. But it just means being captivated by what Jesus has done. This year we're thinking about whole life discipleship. What that means. It simply means allowing this vision of Jesus to influence every channel, every area of our being. So that we become bibline in our thinking. And in, you know, we have biblical blood flowing through our veins because we've been captivated by Jesus. If you can put it like that. Until eventually we can say with the Apostle Paul, I make it my aim to please him. I count everything as rubbish that I might gain Christ. I bring every thought into captivity and make it subject to Christ. You know, that's what it means, whole life discipleship means. It means being captivated by him in every area so that he could say at the end, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's whole life discipleship. So here is John in a bad, uncomfortable situation, an unlikely situation. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day, focused, and he turns to see Jesus and he focuses upon Jesus and who he is. He saw the Lord. And then we have those wonderful verses we're not going to focus on now. Verses 12 to 16 of what he actually saw and then verse 17 where we'll jump in it says this when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead now that's not surprising is it would you be surprised to read that no, I wouldn't I mean here's John this 80 year old man old man and uh, exiled alone knowing that his fellow disciples had been martyred Suddenly he has this encounter with Jesus. Two things to say there. One, first of all, it's, don't you think it's interesting that he recognizes Jesus? I mean, the Jesus he knew was Jesus in, no doubt, a long robe and sandals, walking around the streets of Jerusalem and the rest of Israel, feeding, teaching, preaching, saying kind things, lifting people up, encouraging people and so on, and so on, teaching, etc. That was the Jesus he was used to. Of course, he had seen Jesus in a different light on the mountain of transfiguration, you read about in Matthew 17 and Mark 9, when he saw the, the light of the, God, of, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus in a way he'd never seen it before. But by and large, it was this Jesus he'd walked the streets of Israel, 
But here, when he sees him, he knew immediately it was Jesus. Though he was completely different in this vision, but he knew it was Jesus. And what was it he actually saw? Well, it's those verses 12 to 16. No wonder he fell at his feet as though dead. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, he says, Woe is me. Ezekiel says, I fell on my face. Daniel, Daniel said, I had no strength left. The shepherds, when the angels appeared, says the glory of the Lord shone round about, and they were greatly afraid. Mountain of Transfiguration. There's about the disciples on that occasion, Matthew 17, verse 19. They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. So it's not at all surprising, is it, to see John here saying that he fell on his face before this Jesus that he'd seen when he was focusing on him. It's a natural response. Even it's a proper response. You know, Jesus isn't somebody to have fun with in that sense. Of course, he is a friend, and we can treat him as a friend. But here's this holy awe about the presence of Jesus, the magnificence of Jesus being portrayed. He's holy, holy, holy. But if that's the natural, even the proper response, it's not the final response. For what comes next are Jesus' words, when I fell on my face as though dead, he placed his hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Today, if it's an understandable response to be fearful, these days. It's an understandable response to fear Jesus, to fear God too. But that's not the end. What Jesus says is, listen, there's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Are you frightened by the circumstances you're facing? Or maybe you're frightened by the the Lord himself. What will happen when I see the Lord face to face? When I'm into his presence, Jesus turns to us today and he says, don't be afraid. If we trust in him, we need not fear our circumstances and we need not fear God himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? Or Hebrews 13, where it says in Hebrews 13, God said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Actually, in that part, there are four negatives in that verse. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It literally translates it, I will never, never, no, not ever forsake you. The literal translation. Now you may be saying it's all very well, but you don't know my situation. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know what I face this week. You don't know what I'm looking looking at in the future. I'm the warrior type. I'm a fearful person anyway. My situation is much worse than you know. Yes, but to us today, Jesus turns and he says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But the question then arises, well, does he have the authority to back up those words? I mean, it's all very well to, very well to say, don't be afraid. But what does that mean? Just at the end of our road in Hucklecote, there's a sign, one of those signs, that if you're going too fast in your car, it flashes up the speed you're going. When you're supposed to be going 30 miles an hour and you're going 50, it flashes up on the thing. My wife is very pleased it's there when I'm driving, but it's up there and it's just by the motorway bridge and, and we see it there and so on. But supposing you're driving along in for, at 40 miles an hour 
to make sure I'm not being ridiculous here, saying 80 miles an hour, because you never do that, but 40 miles an hour in a, in a 30 miles an hour zone, okay? Well, like that. And the doctor steps out. Your doctor, you see him a few yards on, and he waves out, and he wa- steps out, and he waves you down. He said, I'm ever so sorry. He said, you were going too fast. That's a 60-pound fine, please. Please make it out like this and this and this. Please pay now. Would you pay? Well, the answer is no, probably not. You may think, well, you're a very clever man, being a doctor, but you don't have the authority to fine me. On the other hand, if it was a policeman who waved you down, you probably would pay. If you're sensible anyway, you would probably pay. But when you had to pay, they said, I haven't got my checkbook with me or cash. And he said, well, take it to the nearest police station within the next seven days or whatever they say. I have no idea. I wouldn't know that sort of thing. But suppose he he said, um, take it to the next police station and you t- turn up at the police, uh, police station to pay your fine and the policeman behind the counter says ah I can see that you've got a growth on your leg, your leg needs amputating, just step into my back office and I'll chop your leg off for you to help you out I don't think you'd be likely to do that but if the doctor said it to you you have a growth and I'm afraid it's serious and it needs that your leg is amputated, we'll make arrangements for that to happen in the hospital, and so on, you would probably say, dreadful though it is, the answer is yes. Why? Because people have authority in different spheres. The doctor has authority in the sphere of medicine, but not in road, the rules of the road. So here's Jesus saying, don't be afraid. Does he have the authority to say it? Which is where it goes on to say, do not be afraid. Why? Because I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. That means he's the beginning and the end of everything. It's not just that he was the beginning and he will be the end, but I am the beginning and I am the end. He is present tense. I am. He's the A to Z of everything. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last verse, uh, uh, letters of the Greek alphabet. That's why you can pray about things in the past, because he's still in the past. That makes sense. And you can pray about things in the future, because he's in the future. It's all the same to him. And you can pray about the things that have influenced you and changed you. The trouble is we can't really think outside of time. We can only think in terms of past, present, and future. And we know that time flows through us. But because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the past and the present and the future are all the same to him, so we can come to him knowing that he is in it all. Not that I was the Alpha and I will be the Omega, but I am those things, Jesus says. Which means, of course, that nothing surprises him. Nothing surprises him. In him is neither beginning of days nor the end of life, says the writer to the Hebrews, speaking about Melchizedek and saying that Jesus is just like that. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's yesterday, today, and forever the same. And so he says, you can trust me. 
You can trust me. The world may be hemming you in. The pressure's building everywhere we look. It's building. But don't worry. Don't be afraid. Because I'm in it all. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I have the expertise and the experience in both past, present, and future. We might put it like that. You know, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he was around in the days of the Boxer Revolution in China. And uh, when they came to power... In case you don't know, Hudson Taylor started China Inland Mission, uh, which became um, Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and uh, has taken the gospel, which has taken the gospel to huge parts of the world. But when the Boxer Revolution or rebellion arose, many of the churches that he'd established in inland China, many of them were crushed, and Christians were killed, and missionaries killed including, by the way, John and Betty Stamm, who might be a name familiar to some of you in that little book, The Triumph of John and Betty Stamm. But anyway, it was a very difficult time for Hudson Taylor. Terrible time for him. With all these churches, all his life's work, all being crushed and destroyed and so on. And some of his fellow workers decided that they needed to go to him to seek to encourage him with this disaster happening. They came to visit him in his home and when they arrived they found him singing. And he's singing, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. Thou hast bid me gaze upon me and thy beauty fills my soul for thy transforming power thou hast made me whole. I'm trusting in him. I'm resting in him because of who who you are and so on. Finding out the greatness of your loving heart. That's that present tense, trusting. Because he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Transforms everything. Go into the whole world and preach the gospel, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Or Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. It's wonderful. Wonderful. And that's when Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And the key that proves that is because I am the living one. That's why we actually put it down to think about today because it's all part of this build up to Easter. I'm the living one. The past has been dealt with. Death has been conquered. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And next Sunday we'll be celebrating that. That's why it is a celebration time of the year for us. We celebrate the event, the person, the fact of history. What Professor Arnold, Professor of History at Oxford in the past, said about the resurrection, he said it's it's an event that has been proved by, and I'm quoting, proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort, the mind of the fair inquirer, the fact that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. C.S. Lewis, another professor at Oxford University in Cambridge too, called him, called his own autobiography, being surprised by joy when he found that Jesus was alive. John Maysfield, the poet, said this, The station brook to my new eyes was flowing out of paradise. The waters babbling from the rain were saying, Christ is risen again. And he goes on to say, I thought all earthly creatures knelt with rapture for the joy I felt. 
That's what it means when you discover what Jesus, who Jesus is, and transforms everything. And he's the one who's alive forevermore. And just one more thing as we finish. He has the keys of death and Hades. So in the Christian life, Paul says to the Corinthians, all things are yours, the world, life, death, present, future, all are yours. You're Christ's, and Christ is God's, is God. 1 Corinthians 3.22. Don't you think we ought to be celebrating this year? What Jesus has done, and who he is. And Sunday by Sunday when we meet on the Lord's Day, we come with hearts prepared, coming in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. We turn our eyes to see Jesus. We tune our ear, though we didn't talk about this, we turn our ear to hear, as John turned his ear to hear. And we're captivated by who Jesus is and the transformation that he makes in our lives. And it makes us new people so that the things of this earth don't matter at all. Except that we want to use those things to proclaim who Jesus is. So let's spend our time now as we close with prayer and we sing one song afterwards. But let's close with a brief prayer together. And let me lead you in prayer as we thank God for these things. First of all, let's make a confession to the Lord. Ask God's forgiveness that so often we come on the Lord's day without preparing our hearts and grumpy and sometimes miserable with the circumstances we face crowding in upon us. Ask him for his forgiveness. And ask him that Sunday by Sunday, this week especially, that we might be in the Spirit, being influenced by Him, with our hearts tuned to Him, being motivated by the Spirit, being transformed by the Spirit. Holy Spirit, will you not work in us this week? And then cap- turn our eyes to see the Lord Jesus, being captivated by him in all his glory, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then, Jesus, we want to thank you that there is no situation, no circumstance over which you do not have control. We are in your hands, and even death and Hades itself are under your control. How we praise you today. And as we look forward to next Sunday when we shall celebrate again the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we say thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have been brought to a knowledge of yourself. Help us to live as your children this week, perhaps in a way we've never lived before, that we might live for the praise of your glory. So, Father, bless us and help us to be those whose whole lives reflect something of the glory of the Lord Jesus. Because we're Christ's, and Christ is God's. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's uh, sing.